Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning, Morrison Bonani. Hello, how's it? You're listening to Big Daddy Liberty and you're actually on the IRR show. Welcome to it. It's another installment of this wonderful weekly show hosted, of course, by moi, your favorite fat boy, Big Daddy Liberty. And of course, the wonderful half of the show, Sarah Gon. Sarah, good morning. How are you doing? Morning. You couldn't have described me better. <laughs> uh, well, I'm very jipper this morning. It is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Tuesday morning, and I'm hoping everybody's feeling energetic and ready for the week. Remember, you can take part in the discussions here on the show by either sending us a telegram at zero six one nine, excuse me, eight nine five one zero one nine, or an SMS at three four five one nine. Um, we have an interesting show for you guys today. Um, in our long feature, in our main segment, the interview we have. Weekly, we have a Mr. Harry van Heerden, who's from the Institute of Race Relations, uh, who'll be talking to us about a newly re- released report that they've had where they looked at the uh, LGBTQ community in Africa. You know, what are the, uh, what's the latest essentially? What does it look like to be an LGBTQ uh, individual? On the continent, our rights being protected, our freedoms being extended to those marginalized groupings. So we're going to have that conversation in our major segment today. But of course, uh, as in any show, we always begin by having a conversation about the week that was. What was in the news cycle? What piqued your interest? What um, got you talking? And um, I know, Sarah, <coughs> by the look that you have on your face, there's quite a few interesting tidbits that we need to go over this week. Sorry, let me begin, I suppose, with the most topical one, the news item that perhaps dominated the weekend. John Steenhazen is the new DA leader. Here's a guy who's been second in command for the longest of time. You know, finally, the, the dressmaker's daughter is the one wearing the dress now, isn't he? <laughs> Look, the thing about John Steenhazen, I, I was really impressed. I didn't see all of it, but I was really impressed with the interview he gave on ENCA with Voyeur and Volko. Um, he didn't miss a beat. Yep. He was calm. He was collected. He was articulate. He dealt with all the tricky questions, particularly the questions that related to race and the determination of, of, of advancement on the basis of race. And he did that extremely well. I, in fact, I, I watched him and I thought, well, the DA must have a sort of school for media interaction because this was absolutely fluid and he came across very well. And he, what he shows more than anything, and I think it tends to be Lost, and I have a very, I feel very strongly about this, is politics, high levels of politics, like everything else, um, like everything else, has its, um, there's one thing people don't concentrate on, and that is that it's crucial to have experience. If you don't have experience, you, there are a whole lots of gaps missing, and I think that has been the problem with putting people who are very bright and very capable, but inexperienced into leadership positions, and I think that's what the DA discovered to its cost in the long run. Absolutely, and um, just a reminder to our listeners, um, after the uh, for our main segment, after the uh, ad break, we're going to have Khari van Heerden talk to us. Um, but as we sort of break into this issue, I, I really want to sort of chew on it because it's so it's so important, isn't it? Mm-hmm. For once in a long time, anybody who's been paying attention, listening mm-hmm. to the DA 
suddenly found a, a very confident and and um, to the point. Mm. Yeah, there wasn't that sort of dilly dallying, mm. and you know, I think John Stenhausen himself aptly described it as as blue jelly. Really? You know, that yeah. sort of wobbles to the left, wobbles <laughs> to the right. Um, but th- there's something greater to this that I think, uh, from an analytical perspective, I want to pay attention to. They're going to head to their uh, policy conference yeah. uh, where they essentially set out their identity on, uh, th- um, uh, through the lens, of course, of policy. They've just brought on, by the sounds of it, um, a, another familiar face to South Africans, a one Miss Gwen Nguenya, who yeah. used to head up their policy uh, uh, unit and obviously right. uh, quit in a big huff and it yeah. became a whole thing. She's b- been brought back. What do you, what do you read into that? I, I, it seems to be very much with the influence of Helen Ziller, which of course will attract its own uh, its own criticism. But the thing is that um, Gwen didn't go over to Muzi Maimani's team. Sort of, she didn't go begging for a job. He he, uh, shall we say, poached her from us. Yeah. Um, so he knew what he was getting, and for a while it seemed like everything was working well, and then dynamics changed or influences changed within the, the environment. It's a clear intent on on Helen Ziller's part. Um, John Stenhausen has kind of indicated that he's not going to be hidebound by anything that Helen Ziller does. But, you know, all a policy uh, person can do is draft policy, which has then got to be adopted or not adopted or amended and adopted. It's not as if she comes in, sets policy and says, guys, that's it, that's what you've got to go by. So I think there's a little bit of sort of um, personal personality politics mm. happening here. Maybe as a final question before we move on. There is a big question I think the DA needs to answer in their policy deliberations, and that is, will they really break from the ANC um, world mm. of viewing things, which is primarily through a racial lens, mm. where you, Sarah, are a white woman who needs to be treated in a certain way. Mm. Um, I am a black individual, often viewed in, through a victim lens, mm. that has to be treated a certain way. Will this DA break away from that racial lens and actually make the argument, for example, will we see a politician, Sarah, mm. who stands up on a podium and actually says, you know what? I don't want to help you because you're black. I want to help you because you're poor. Mm. That key distinction around a non-racial approach towards empowerment, do you think we're going to see that, DA? Let's put it this way. If we don't, there's probably not much point in the DA being there because I don't think anyone wants a lighter, softer, more competent version of the ANC. Mm. The ANC is the ANC. Mm-hmm. People, you know, political parties have, a, have got to have a, a, an ethos. They put that ethos out there. And if, if voters like that ethos, they come to the party. That's not to say that the party doesn't listen to what people are saying. But you don't start altering who you are and what you are because some people are saying this and some people are saying that. Mm. If they want to put out a classically liberal message and that disadvantage is the proxy for disadvantage, mm. that's what they must do. I think there is a, a small segment of the DA that is still fighting for that, for fighting against that rather. And that's, and political parties go through that. But if, if, if if the classically liberal side doesn't pan out, they may as well go and do something else. Okay. Um, I'm sure we'll have this conversation with some analyst in the near future, especially as we move towards this, this um, much vaunted <laughs> policy conference, because it's, it's going to be very topical. Um, but let's move on to another uh, newsmaker over the weekend. That was the South African Air- Airways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
one of their biggest unions, NUMSA, goes on a strike um, with lots of sort of red and tooth and claw uh, rhetoric around that. Oh, there'll be absolute, you know, hell to reckon and, you know, the planes are not safe to fly. You know, you sort of you would have thought, um, you know, the wings are suddenly going to come off like immediately. Um, But to an extent, the wings have come off because over the weekend they grounded flights. And this, of course, had major impacts on the economy. It did. uh, They were losing uh, millions a day. Hundreds uh, of millions. I can't can't remember. I did see it, but I can't remember the exact figure. Um, But it's actually sort of crunch time. SAA has nowhere to go financially. Um, Liquidation is next. And I I, I understand where the unions are coming from in the sense that that's where they always come from. But where they're coming from now makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. To demand a pay increase of any kind mm. is, is, is in the circumstances is idiotic. But to reject a 5% pay increase and over 5% pay increase for an 8% increase demand, mm. oh, you know, I, I, I just don't know. So it's almost like they are helping because if, if they go into liquidation, there are no retrenchments have to be paid. The c- company shuts down. There are no employees. It's end of story. They, the, the Cap and Crew Association, which is on strike with NOMSA, mm-hmm. has, has said that, made some remarks earlier about, you know, the, the pilots got 5%, therefore they should at least get 5%. Like, Sorry, guys. There is a, there is a, there's a skills gap. There's mm. a needs gap. There's a uh, speciality gap. Mm. You, you know, if the unions don't wake up to it, they are really, really going to be left behind. Mm. Solidarity, you, you see, is not there. Mm-mm-mm. Maybe as a final point, because I think the average South African is wondering, for how long will it be the case that I, as a potentially poor person who, play, who pays taxes and VAT and all that, have to continue subsidizing a airline which basically mostly rich people fly off, of really upper mm-hmm. sort of middle class type individuals fly on, how long is that the case? Because there's something p- perhaps morally dubious about that, you know, getting poor people to, to find rich people flying. But this is, particularly in a country like this where a lot of the money that's paid is paid by businesses to get their employees yeah. to elsewhere to do business. That, that, that's fine in and of itself. I'm not so sure about the freebies for the uh, public sector and the, and the cabinet and the parliament, but let, be that as it may. But, it's, but that's absolutely true, particularly as the Oh, as I understand it, there are two potential buyers out there who, from what I understand about the nature of the size of the operations, they are not going to take instruction from a government or a, a, a majority shareholding or a shareholding that, that in any way controls their decision making. Mm. It's like, that's how things operate properly and appropriately, talking about, you know, poor people having to, uh, you know, their taxes going to, mm. to, to keep up SAA. Alright guys, I think we're going to head over to our next ad break now And um, after this ad break, as I mentioned earlier on We're going to have Mr. Khari van Heerden in the studio Who's from the IRR To talk to us about LGBT rights in Africa Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008 Molo Bonani, welcome, how's it? And welcome to the IRR show My name is Big Daddy Liberty, your favorite fat boy And of course I'm joined in studio by the ever-wonderful Sara Khan. Sara, we were just uh, making the point just before the break that, um, you know, there is a, a major discussion to be had around what sort of societies we're trying to build across uh, the world and perhaps just let's fo- leave the focus here in Africa. Do we go down the route of what we've always seen, which is authoritarian, um, you know, closed-off societies, societies where, you know, various vested interest groupings are at, at, at war with each other? 
um, obviously instigated by, you know, vested interest groupings. Now we see this, for example, play out in South Africa through the race prism. Politicians are, you know, very, very adept at saying, oh, those whites are this and those blacks are this and, you know, playing up those differences. And of course, you see that filter down into other issues too, where certain marginalized groupings um, become othered in society, and they don't enjoy the same freedoms and the same rights that we do. Um, you know, the LGBT community comes to mind. Um, just before we introduce our guest, um, what's your view on this? How do we build that freedom-loving society that encompasses all? You see, I think the thing is that um, South Africa... Is, is at risk of, of jettisoning its, its, its freedoms. Imperfect as it is, it has a constitution that, that guarantees certain rights and freedoms. And it's, it's those guarantee of those freedoms and which mean that the individual, their, his, his or her rights or freedoms are guaranteed. <coughs> and if that person's rights are guaranteed, then the, the rights of the group can follow because the individuals create the group. The individuals form the group. To, to look at rights in terms of only in terms of groups, which is what the ANC tends to do, means that you don't begin to cater for the variety of people in the, in the society and the aspirations. Yep. And if, if we can sort of pull back, you know, people say that, probably correctly that uh, classical liberal societies are not common and, and, and not easily found. But ironically, I think the instinct of normal, of ordinary people to the idea of protecting the individual first and foremost mm. is actually, would be very natural. It's the, it's the leadership that tends to look at dominating the groups. Mm. And, and there's an interesting distinction too, um, because I get a lot of flack, for example, on social media when I make this argument that you want to build a society that mm-hmm. protects the rights and freedoms of everybody. That's not to say that you uh, necessarily have to agree mm. with that person, at the, mm. but that's the thing about living in a free society. That's right. You don't have to agree or even promote uh, someone else's view or lifestyle, but you are the strongest protector of their rights to live a life of that they can pursue their own happiness. And, and, and the thing about a successful, a successful for democratic society is that if an individual breaches your rights or impinges on your rights, then that then the law is there to deal with it. Absolutely. It's not if they don't. It's it's actually none of your business. And let me bring in Khadi van Heerden, of course, who's joining us gracefully from the Institute of Race Relations. Khadi, of course, is a researcher and analyst from the IRR and also does a lot of work for the Center of Risk Analysis, which is the more sort of professional, um, or rather let me call it the business arm, if you will. Um, Khadi, good morning. Welcome to the IRR show. We're super happy to have you with us. Um, good morning, Sikhle. Thank you for having me here in the heart of the Jewish community. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I called um, it Ground Zero. But <laughs> um, Khadi, let's hop straight into it. We've had this conversation on our various other platforms, um, including the Big Liberty Show and uh, the Daily Friend. Remember, you can find a lot of the work that we do uh, at the IR on the Daily Friend website. That's dailyfriend.co.za. Had we've had this conversation because you released a, I think, a very insightful report that clearly painted the picture as to what the LGBTQ community across Africa looks like in terms of its rights and freedoms and what the sort of obstacles it faces. Before we go into the main findings of the report, let's talk just generally about the sort of uh, struggles that a small community like this um, and often a marginalized community like this faces, you know, from issues of corrective rape, et cetera, et cetera. What is the landscape like here in South Africa now? 
Um, yes, so of course South Africa is famously known to be one of the first countries in the world to uh, enshrine um, anti-discrimination laws against the LGBTQ community as well as legalizing same-sex marriage. Um, but, you know, my study and other studies have also shown that um, it all the, the protections afforded in the Constitution um, uh, they, they, um, their implementation um, basically uh, uh, is reliant on where you are located in the country and from which socioeconomic background you're from. Mm. So you did mention the, the incidences of corrective rape that uh, happened so frequently in South Africa that we ended up being the country that coined it. And let's just quickly unpack what that is. What is a corrective rape? Oh, yes. So corrective rape is um, where men rape lesbian women in order to cure them. Um, and that happens uh, quite frequently around Cape Town. Um, and then also uh, uh, in terms of the impl- implementation of the law, we also see some state institutions um, not enforcing the law. So, for example, um, less than a third of home affairs departments across the country um, actually have marriage officials willing to marry same-sex couples. So South Africa um, still has a long way to go. Um, uh, if I can just bring in some other statistics as well, mm. um, black LGBTQ South Africans are twice as likely than their white counterparts to know of someone who was murdered for for being gay. And um, there's still uh, 50% of uh, 50% of LGBTQ um, South Africans um, who are black know of someone who was murdered for being gay. So there's uh, there's still a, a class gap, there's a, a race gap, and there uh, there still needs to be a lot of work to be done in, in this country. Sorry, go. Um, I wanted to know, and because it, it comes through in, um, in the report about the whole of Africa, that a, a factor to a greater or less extent almost everywhere is the influence of religion or um, conservative belief. Mm. Um, and to what extent might you subscribe these negative views to a religious outlook um, which has become probably part of the uh, cultural fabric or a, a cultural outlook, mm. given the fact that we have, you know, so in essence, so many advantages in this in this area. Mm. So I think that is one of the main reasons why I pro- uh, am a main proponent of living in a secular society mm. um, as well as a society where democracy reigns and the, where there's a clear separation of powers and not a conflation too much between religion and state. So, for example, in Malawi and Tanzania, you see a lot of the the laws being implemented there are justified for religious reasons. Um, so, so uh, I think it is Tanzania that is also a constitutionally a, a Christian country, mm-hmm. and um, so. Uh, and then there's also the the factor about um, a, a radical religious fundamentalist mm. groups from other parts of the world coming into the continent and basically opening up, uh, for lack of a better word, hate churches mm-hmm. um, and uh, 
that's that's also a huge problem that affects the sub-Saharan African continent. And then also you mentioned um, another element, uh, culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so culture is also a, a huge um, uh, uh, obstacle for the local LGBTQ community, especially in terms of the language being used um, that you find in certain cultures. As w- because, for example, in Angola, um, uh, some culture groups they believe that transgender people are possessed, mm-hmm. um, and then also um, uh, in terms of. Uh, um, uh, how homosexuality is understood in some cultures. So homosexuality in many parts of the continent is considered to be uh, alien to Africa, alien to um, traditional African beliefs and customs, and that it's uh, uh, something of a Western concept. And um, so I think rel- religious reasons and uh, some uh, heavy misinterpreted mis- misunderstanding of history. Mm. Um, is uh, two two main obstacles that face the local LGBTQ community. Let's go into the report itself and mm. some of the key findings. Because mm. remember, dear listener, the report speaks to not only South Africa and the experience of the LGBT communi- community in, Af- in South Africa, excuse me, but also in Africa broadly, Sub-Saharan Africa. There's a report you put out, which you can find on the IRR website. Um, you make one of the points around... Um, education being important. Um, you, you make the argument that there's a clear link between education and LGBTQ tolerance. Talk to me about, about that. Um, yes, so um, I interviewed someone from Zimbabwe and he told me that um, the, the Zimbabwean uh, education system is divided into three types of schools. You have uh, A schools that are working class schools, B schools that are middle class schools, and C schools that are mo- most prestigious. And it is at these Model C schools that you uh, receive um, h- proper um, high quality of education. And he also says <clears throat> it is at these very same schools where you find high tolerance levels for people with different sexual orientations and gender identities. Um, so when Neil Hovelmeyer, the um, Zimbabwean teacher who came out um, in one of these Model C schools, when he came out, there was a huge um, influx of support from his pupils and other teachers within the school as well. And then to, to uh, bring in more facts to this um, uh, um, topic. Um, so what we also found was people with a tertiary education in sub-Saharan Africa are three times as likely to um, be accepting towards the gay community um, compared to those who don't have any um, uh, education whatsoever. Mm. So there, there's a clear... Um, a correlation, and I also mentioned it earlier, but uh, it is through education that you can um, educate people or inform them uh, properly about the history of the continent, mm-hmm. uh, especially about pre-colonial Africa, and understand that much of the laws that are being implemented in various uh, parts of the continent were uh, put there by uh, colonial powers. And so it's quite um, ironic that many governments uh, in Africa are saying that uh, they don't want new colonialism in the form of LGBTQ rights, and yet that's basically what they're reinforcing. That's the sad irony, isn't it? Yeah. Um, 
you raise the specter of the state, the state itself. And there is an example you guys, uh, excuse me, you cited, sorry, in the report, um, about a, a group of guys in, is it, uh, Botswana? Who tested the, the constitutional courts in, 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 in their country to essentially gauge where the country is on their, their protections and rights versus perhaps where maybe a society which is more conservative may be. Mm-hmm. Tell me a bit about that case and what did we learn from that? Oh yes. Um, so, um, of course, Botswana decriminalized homosexuality earlier this year. Um, but that process was something that took place over a few years and it took Lego Bibo, the main LGBTQ organization there, to go to court a few years ago to, um, do a test case, uh, to see where, what, uh, the judicial system in Botswana, uh, where they stand legally on, on the rights for LGBTQ people. And what they saw was that, um, in, under Botswana law at the time, uh, it was actually sodomy that was criminalized, not homosexuality. Mm. So in other words, um, LGBTQ people had the right to exist under the laws of freedom of association and freedom of expression, um, and that it's actually same-sex sex activity that is criminalized. So um, one of the the, the main um, proposals for the report is... is LGBTQ community should rather try to prove that they um, have a right to exist under current law and then from there build a case to decriminalize same-sex activity. It just makes it their their attempts to broaden their rights more easier if they can if they can do that. Mm. One one of the impressions I got through reading the report was uh, it. it Sub-Saharan Africa, as in Southern Africa, mm. generally seems to be much more liberal and tolerant mm. than as, than going north. But once you go on north, you right up to um, the 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 countries at the top of the continent, mm-hmm. the, the, you see the toler the tolerance mm. just diminish. Yeah, there's that religious fundamentalism. There's that, that religious fundamentalism. There. But but we have um, areas of re- religious fundamentalism all through this part of the continent, mm. and. I'm surmising that the, re- that the one of the significant differences, although there are there are exceptions, is how the the political leadership mm-hmm. deals with the with the issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the same is with whether they promote whether they engender racism or any form of othering. Mm-hmm. The leadership, the political leadership, has a big role to play. Does, did this come across for you, or did it, was it not significant? Um, so um, what I did come across was that many political leaders in Africa, um, that, so the, the, the laws that are enshrined in their constitutions are being enforced by society itself. Mm-hmm. So the political leaders in those countries look at what the general um, uh, attitudes and opinions are of societies on the uh, on the ground, and then uh, they, uh, in order to remain popular in the elections, they um, they are either unwilling to propose uh, a broadening of LGBTQ rights, or they uh, find it an easy scapegoat. Uh, to use in order to deflect from their from their own problems, mm. um, but what we 've seen in in Zambia 
is that people are starting to wake up to the government's deflection tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, when when election comes around again and the Zambian government once again says that we're trying to protect you guys from Western influences trying to impose their their uh, gay rights on us, um, a lot of Zambians uh, have started to ask, okay, yeah, that's all good and well, but what about our sky-high taxes? What about unemployment? What about uh, poor service delivery? Let's fix that first and then focus on these these um, other issues. Yeah. Can, can I just ask again, mm. and this particular thing pertains to, not again, first time, Kenya and South Africa, mm. and that is that it, um, a negative or discriminatory attitude has a, an economic effect mm. um, because the worldwide the sort of the the gay fraternity is known to be um, sort of uh, w- relatively well off uh, as- aspirant they've they, they've got money to spend so the, their tourism mm. can be and is very very important mm. and Kenya seems to have taken a backward position even though mm. you know they they rely hugely on tourism yeah so um I think uh, if you don't want to uh, uh, bring about LGBTQ rights for moral reasons, then there is definitely a justification to do so for economic reasons. And so in the case of Kenya that you brought up, um, if I if I can just remember the numbers on the top of my head. So in terms of tourism, um, or the fact that um, uh, LGBTQ tourists from other regions in the world uh, will be too scared to come to Kenya. Uh, the loss in terms of tourism revenue is uh, is estimated around a hundred million dollars a year. Uh, in terms of health related issues, depression, anxiety. Um, uh, also H- HIV and AIDS because of discriminatory policies, that amounts to one billion rand lost. And then finally, uh, in terms of um, lost wages and lost taxes and underemployment, there's another $100 million flush down the rain, drain. Absolutely. Uh, Harry, we're going to keep you with us. We're just going to take a very quick ad break. But when we come back, we're going to ask a few more questions of Harry. And I might even play devil's advocate on this one. So he must Ooh. look forward to some tough <laughs> questioning. If you want to contribute to the conversation, of course, remember to send us a telegram. 061-895-1019. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Molo Sanbonani, hello, how's it? And welcome back to the IRR show. We're having a very fruitful conversation with Khari van Herden, who's from the Institute of Race Relations, who recently put together a research report that looked at the LGBTQ community in Africa. What are their rights and their freedoms? What are the state of those rights and freedoms, rather? And uh, before the break, I did say you can contribute to the conversation um, by sending us a telegram at 061-895-1019 or send us an SMS if you're old school like me. Um, at 34519. Harry, we had before the next sort of eight minutes or so. And as I said before the break, I'm going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate in terms of I'll play the, the, the role of a, a, a government politician, a government official who is vehemently against um, extending rights and freedoms to the LGBT communities. I'm going to put the sort of arguments I think that you'd hear from them, and I want to see or hear how you rebut uh, those arguments. So let's let's play this fictitious um, government peti- uh, official. Let's, let's call it Wakanda for, <laughs> for the lack of any other sort of um, apt example. Um, so... 
I would say is, is this politician, right? This, this, uh, oh, well, you know, Harry, um, we don't want these, um, LGBT communities because, you know, if we allow you guys to have rights, then you'll turn the whole society into lesbians and gays. Um, well, so, uh, I'll first start off by saying that if you empower individuals on the ground, you, uh, end up benefiting the country as the as a whole so um if 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 laws are enacted that provide opportunity uh economically and socially for um the lgbtq community the government for example won't need to spend um extra money on um health related services and um uh, let's say for example um a social safety net for for those who are excluded from the economy, so uh, I'll just hammer once again on that that economic um, uh, justification, and then also um, it it also helps to uh, uh, to be in good standing with your your major trading partners as well. So, um, for example. Uh, Europe and the US, some of our major economies in the world, uh, they champion LGBTQ rights and uh, some of those countries have been known to um, withhold investment and um, to sanction um, if if human rights violations, especially uh, towards the LGBTQ community on the continent, occurs. Um, so there, there, there's definitely, uh, I think, two reasons that the government could uh, listen to. I mean, when your when the pockets of your uh, um, a purse or, or wallet gets hurt. Um, I think that will help a lot of government officials to to listen. Yeah. Then this politician would say, just two more questions. He would mm. say, "Yeah, well, Harry, you know, we, we control state media, so there's no way in which people like you mm. can spread your message um, or even bring awareness to this issue because we mm. control media, mm. and there's no way around this." Mm. Um, oh dear. <laughs> um, so uh, I would, I would say that uh, you know it is it is a complicated situation in sub-Saharan Africa because a lot of the countries on the continent are dictatorships. They're unwilling to listen to to civil society and uh, small NGOs, um, and that's why I think it's uh, imperative that we are able to empower uh, democratic institutions such as the. The, the courts, um, but also, um, I mean, one, one other finding in the, in the report was that, that, um, civil society organizations were able to work around, uh, the legislative obstacles that the government put before them through, uh, media, uh, using social media. media. And, um, it is through social media such as, um, uh, Facebook and WhatsApp, uh, that we especially be, uh, see being utilized in Mozambique, um, that, uh, that has really helped to, to galvanize and create a support system for the local LGBTQ community there. And, but once again, the government can clamp down on those channels. Um, so it, it's important for civil, for local civil society groups to work in collaboration with, um, international partners and for international partners to provide resources and funding for, for, for local groups. Well, on this as a final question, 
or a final point as this hateful politician, the fictitious politician. Yeah, but you know, I don't trust these international organizations. You know, they're the ones who are bringing this, this LGBTQ agenda into the country. Um, you know, there's no such thing as local gay populations. Harry, mm-hmm. am I right? Um, so in the case of, uh, Iswatini, we saw that, um, well, the, the person that I interviewed from that country said that he was quite cautious to have too much international interference, um, because it may come across as, you know, Western values trying to be imposed on traditional, um, uh, or trying to threaten traditional African beliefs and customs. So, um, what, was suggested was that local LGBTQ groups be the main driver for the fight behind gay rights because then they their task is relatively easy. They can say, hey, um, we are part of this country, we are part of the African continent, but at the same time, we can provide a message saying that this isn't coming from... S- Outside of the continent, this is coming from within, uh, from in your own country. They can bridge that gap between homosexuality being alien to the continent. Mm. Um, but of course, I will just um, reiterate that it is local LGBTQ people uh, or organizations uh, cannot function uh, on their own. They, they'll have to create multinational uh, partnerships in order to uh, maintain relevancy and to have enough resources. Khadi, mm. yeah. maybe as I, we move to the tail end of our conversation, there's just two areas I want to quickly cover with you. As I said, when I began this conversation, to me, because um, I'm also a relatively religious person, right, but I always view it through the lens of live and let live. If you want to enjoy the the freedoms and the rights to be who you are, to self-express, in my case, you know, through a Jewish lens or whatever the case may be, you need to also accord that same freedom and those same rights to Mm. other people as long as they don't harm or interfere Mm. in your way of life. Mm. Mm. And as I say this, I, I look at the LGBT community and I look at their cause and I worry a little bit about how they're also being stigmatized, especially through research um, and, and, and studies and, and the like. It's always viewed through a, a public health lens, isn't it, where there's certain stigmas that are now almost attached yeah. to it because a lot of the, 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 the research comes through from a HIV AIDS perspective mm-hmm. example. Let's just quickly unpack that. Like, Why is that problematic and is there a need for a shift in how mm-hmm. we do this? Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is a need for a shift, but I wouldn't do away with the, the health-related angle because it has been so successful up until now to even have governments uh, on the continent to shed more light on the LGBTQ community. We saw that in Zambia where an official document was released that showed that um, homosexual or, or gay and transgender people were included included as key priority groups in um, fighting HIV and AIDS. And that's a huge feat. But however, there is a risk of a stigmatized narrative emerging where especially uh, homophobic and religious fundamentalists um, might associate homosexuality strongly with HIV and AIDS. Mm-hmm. So rather, let's try other initiatives such, such as broadening education, um, creating awareness campaigns, and focusing on other issues such as uh, unemployment that that uh, also faces the community. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Khadi von Hirden, of course, is from the Institute of Race Relations. Thank you so much for joining us. Khadi, where do we find, well, firstly, what's the name of the report itself and where do we find it? Okay, it's a mouthful. 
for LGBTQ rights in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, perspectives of the region from the region, and you can find it uh, on the Institute of Race Relations website. Fantastic, Heidi. Thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, yeah, I mean, sorry, interesting conversation. Let's go to a quick ad break, and we'll come back and wrap up the show. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Molo Sanbonani, hello, how's it? Shalom. Welcome back to the IOR show as we uh, wrap up the sort of final eight minutes of the show. Sarah, uh, you know, as always in every segment or every last segment of the show, we either read comments and of course we talk about uh, what to look out for in the the news week ahead. Um, Perhaps the most topical issue right now, only because it's literally just sort of playing in the news cycle, is the appointment of the New ESCOM CEO, I, his name evades me right now. Uh, Andre Dorator. There we go, there we go. Um, and of course, the, the moment you, you, you have any situation in this country where a, um, a white person is appointed to any senior position, you know, there's the usual gaggle of racial nationalists who come out, you know, sort of gnashing their teeth. Um, oh, how dare you appoint a white person, blah, 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 blah. The usual gang came out here, you know, the yeah. EFF and the yeah. Black yeah. Business Council, you know, the sort of, the, the rooted in race nationalism. Yeah. But I Ironically, as we now have heard this morning, the ANC came out and said, hey, his race shouldn't really matter. I think the problem is, in reality, it took a long time of, it's almost two years of not solving the problems at ESCOM to accept the fact that they needed skills irrespective of of the color of the the guy. And uh, I have to say, from my perspective, that uh, a little bit of eye candy there. Um, but he has 20 years experience in Sassel and probably as much in, in NAMPAC. So he's, he's, he's both has an understanding of, of, uh, of fuels and he has an understanding of turning around businesses. Mm. It's what they say after missing at least three self-imposed deadlines, uh, four senior cabinet ministers finally settled on his, on his appointment. He is the 13th boss since 2009. Wow. Um, I wish him the best of luck, uh, as I would have wished anyone who preceded him. And all that's going to matter at the end is whether he makes a positive difference. Mm. And there is a conversation to be had about ESCOM, for instance. I mean, mm. um, our chief economist, Ian Crookshanks, who we've had on the show, has mm. had has made this particular point, that you will not solve the, uh, the doldrums or get South Africa out of the doldrums economically if you do not have a reliable producer of electricity. Mm. We've had a brief conversation. I think maybe, as I'm saying this, we, we should actually have someone on who can delve into the S Commission. We'll, we'll try and find a guest next mm. week who can actually go into good detail around this because th- there is a future... There is a conversation about the future of ESCOM, the idea that it needs to be broken up into producers of power, transmitter, and, of course, the service end at the end, um, so that you unbundle this behemoth of a monster. Well, well, I think other than the sheer pressure of facing a, a potential downgrade, and hence the, the space has been given to, the, to SAA, and it's, it's going to act as a, a lodestar for, mm. uh, for ESCOM, mm. Something that the, the, something from the private sector that the government does need to understand is that circumstances change, even in the best of times. And how you deal with institutions, how you, how people run businesses 
you know, that changes. It yeah. has to change. And th- that's no bad thing. But in this case, it's a desperate thing. Absolutely. Guys, if you enjoyed the, con- uh, the content today, please pass us some comments on our social media. You'll find me, of course, on your all social media at Big Daddy Liberty. Uh, and Sarah, you can find, I think, on some social media. I don't know. I know my, my social media is a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit haphazard. You're better off going to the, uh, to the uh, to our videos uh, for the Daily Friend show. Uh, and absolutely, podcast. and maybe as I wrap up, you'll find all our content, of course, on the Daily Friend website. That's www.dailyfriend.co.za. Special thanks to our producer here this morning, who I never thank at the end of the show, <laughs> and thank you to the listener for listening. You'll find us again on the IRR show every Tuesday at nine a.m. next week. <laughs>